Good morning and welcome to the Hub City Church. We're so glad you've decided to join us in worship this morning. If you're new to Hub City, we exist to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the word of God. If you'd like to hear more about our vision, or if you're interested in joining one of our serve teams, you can visit our website, thehubcitychurch.org, or just text the word Hub City to 97,000, and we'll follow up with you in the next few days. A couple times a year, we get together on a Saturday to knock out a few of our bigger projects around the church building. We'd love for you to join us on Saturday, September 23rd, as we tackle a few much-needed repairs and improvements. Regardless of your level of skill, there is something you can help with, and we would appreciate all the help we can get. God has been so faithful in continuing to grow our church body. To help accommodate those looking for seating, it would be super helpful to keep end seats open so our ushers are able to easily find seats for those coming into the service. Kids are always welcome in service and we have a nursing mother's room with our service streaming live just outside the lobby to the left. Again, we're so glad you're here. Let's worship Jesus together. All right, well, hey, good morning again. Uh, my name is Tad Anderson. I'm the uh, lead teaching pastor here at the Hub City Church. And the, once again, on behalf of our church family, we are so glad uh, that you've joined us to worship Jesus this morning. Uh, I do just have a couple of announcements before we get to the word. The first thing is, uh, next Saturday, uh, we do have a church work day, uh, our fall work day. Uh, we usually, on any given year, uh, this year's a little different because we you know, did a rename and rebrand and all this. We had lots of work days. But usually every year we have uh, about two work days where we invite everybody to come and, and help out, just pitch in, kind of get things uh, tidied up and get bigger projects knocked out um, because, uh, you know, we don't have a paid maintenance person or maintenance team. Um, if you're a part of our church, it's us, okay? We're, we're, we're the maintenance team. So uh, anyway, so next Saturday from 8 to noon, we do have a handful of projects that we would love your help on, uh, regardless of your level of skill. If you're um, highly skilled with things like that, we'd love for you to be here. If you're not as highly skilled like me, then you can, uh, we have lots of mess that can be cleaned up too in certain rooms and storage spaces and things like that. So uh, we'd love for you to join us for that fall work day. Um, the, the second thing is the next thing on our fall schedule is our fall fest coming up on uh, Sunday, um, October 8th. That'll be in lieu of community group. It'll be uh, lots of fun, fellowship, and uh, fall stuff. So uh, fall-themed games. Uh, every year we do uh, a chili cook-off, and uh, we've got a lot of uh, stiff competition in this church in that cook-off. So uh, if you're new then, and you have a good chili recipe, then feel free to jump into the competition. Uh, also, it's kind of a, kind of a bittersweet uh, thing that particular event. This will also be our, we'll make this kind of our official uh, send-off celebration, if you will, for the McIntyre family uh, who have been restationed in New Jersey coming up here soon in the middle of October. Tristan has been uh, a faithful elder here, and Sarah, their family, have just been uh, just beloved members of our body for a long time. So uh, we'll take that opportunity to love on them, let them know how much we appreciate them, and uh, yeah, maybe shed some tears and give some hugs and things like that, okay? So uh, that's the two things I have for us this morning. All right, we are uh, wrapping up the book of Ephesians over the next few weeks. And in these final verses of the book, after uh, talking extensively about gospel doctrine uh, in the first three chapters and then gospel culture in the last three chapters, the Apostle Paul uh, is now going to turn his attention here at the end to gospel opposition. Gospel opposition, that is spiritual warfare. And we'll split this into two discussions. This week, uh, we'll talk about the biblical foundation for it, uh, what it is and, and how to understand it in light of the gospel. And then next week, we'll talk about the ways that Paul gives us for fighting against it. Okay, so uh, let's read our text 
We'll pray, and then we'll dive in. We're picking it up in Ephesians 6, verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you as always for your grace and the the privilege we have of gathering as your redeemed people this morning. I pray that we would not ever forget that it is possible for this time to go away and that in many regions of the world, it can only happen under threat of persecution for some of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So this 90 minutes or so, while it may feel ordinary to us, is actually incredibly special and we should praise you for the ability to partake in it. But Lord, now as we turn back to Ephesians 6, I pray that you would open our eyes to the truths that you have for us this morning. In particular, God, the, the serious truths about the enemy of our souls, the devil, Satan. God, as we think through who he is and his demonic activity that seeks to undermine gospel advancement in the world, would you help us not to grow overly fearful or overly fascinated, but rather strengthened in our resolve to fight the good fight of faith and to be prepared for the ways this enemy of ours might try to deceive or sway any of us individually. As your word says, Lord, we do not want to be unaware or ignorant of his designs because we do not want to be outwitted by him. So help us, I pray, Lord, to this end in the spiritual war that we find ourselves in. We know that you have already won, so help us to live not as victims, but as conquerors in Christ. It's in his mighty name that we pray. Amen. Amen. About... uh, About two and a half hours from here in Prattville, Alabama, there's a famous billboard on the side of I-65 that says, go to church or the devil will get you, right? (laughs) With a little red man on on there with a tail and, and horns, and he's got a big, long sickle blade, which is odd because I I thought the devil was supposed to carry a pitchfork, but um, anyway... (laughs) Understanding our Southern Bible Belt context, my goal today will not be to convince you that there is indeed a real personal devil, as I assume most of us already believe that, but rather uh, from Ephesians 6 and many supporting texts to try to give the best explanation that I can of who he is in light of the gospel and what it seems the Bible tells us that he is up to these days in regard to Christians, okay? So let's go ahead and jump into that. We've got a lot to cover. First of all, who is the devil, and where did he come from? To answer this question, uh, we'll have to do a little bit of uh, educated speculation because the scriptures do not lay it out for us super plainly, Uh, You have to do a little bit of Bible detective work. Perhaps you know already that the devil has many names in Scripture. Satan would be his proper name. Uh, And in Hebrew, it means adversary or opponent. He's also referred to as our enemy, obviously, uh, or the accuser. And all of these are quite fitting, uh, as I think we'll come to realize. You see, in in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that in the beginning... The only person who was, was God, okay? And God created out of the sheer power of his words, the heavens and the earth. And in the creation narrative there, uh, God goes through, as you probably know, God goes through and he, he systematically creates every element of everything that exists, including us, mankind. And at the end of that... God 
looks around at everything that he made, and he calls it very good, right? Nothing is wrong, nothing is broken, all is as it should be with the universe. But then, strangely, in Genesis 3, we're met by a rather shady character called the serpent, who starts talking to Eve in a very inappropriate manner. He starts slandering God, telling Eve that God didn't really have her best interests at heart and that God was keeping the very best thing from her, which was, he said, knowledge of good and evil. Right? Trust you know how the story goes from there, sadly. But through context clues, later on, we find out that the serpent is the devil or Satan. So um, if, just follow me here, if, if all was well in Genesis 1, and then out of nowhere comes the devil in Genesis 3, then uh, most Bible scholars agree there must have been some kind of a rebellion in the angelic realm between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. In 2 Peter, as well as Jude, we see other references to this where it says that God did not, quote, did not spare angels when they sinned, but he cast them out of his presence. And it would seem that Satan, the devil, uh, was the ringleader of that rebellion because we find out that uh, another one of his nicknames is the Prince of Demons. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 10 that he, quote, saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So demons including Satan, to give you kind of a textbook, working textbook definition here, based on all of this, demons are evil angels who sinned against God and who now make it their mission to continually work evil in the world. Okay. Now, while Genesis 3 is a pretty bleak point in the storyline of the Bible with everything good being fractured by the sin of mankind under the demonic influence of God's enemy, Satan, there, there is hope just around the corner, okay? Um, this past week on the anniversary of 9-11, I was reading one of President George W. Bush's addresses to a joint session of Congress and the American people, and regardless of your political leanings, man, it's just a, just a great, strong speech, Unfortunately, we don't have many presidents like that anymore. But anyway, I love this part towards the end where he said this. He said, great harm has been done to us. We have suffered great loss. And in our grief and anger, we have found our mission and our moment. Freedom and fear are at war. We will rally the world to this cause by our efforts, by our courage, we will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. Well, in Genesis 3.15, God makes this same kind of hope-filled proclamation in the wake of brokenness. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, righteousness and sin are now at war. But righteousness is going to win. Though you've done great harm to both God and man, in the end, they are both going to crush you, Satan. And so fast forwarding to where we are now in redemptive history, God has kept his promise in Jesus the serpent smasher, the Satan slayer, the devil defeater. In Hebrews 2.14, it says this, Since therefore the children, that is us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Christ, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So here's the first kind of overarching point that we need to remember regarding Satan that demonic loser, okay? The gospel is the good news that the spiritual war against sin, death, 
and the one who instigated them, the devil, has been won via Jesus' perfect life, atoning death on the cross, and hope-giving resurrection. Okay, it's good news, isn't it? (laughs) You see, no one outsmarts God. And no one takes glory away from God. Okay? When God sent Jesus in human flesh, he accomplished a few things all at once. The most obvious is that he made the perfect sacrifice to atone for sin and save humanity. Right? So because Jesus... This is really important. This is important Christian doctrine, okay? This is like top-tier important Christian doctrine. Because Jesus was 100% man, he was able to be a perfect substitute for us and stand in to absorb the wrath of God that we deserved. But because Jesus was also 100% God, His sacrifice was priceless, and it could afford to cover the cost of any and all sin, past, present, and future, for anyone who would repent and trust him. Okay, so while Satan thought for sure that leading mankind into sin in Genesis chapter 3 would somehow steal God's glory... He seems to have forgotten in his pride, which is very characteristic of pride, right? It blinds us. He seems to have forgotten in his pride that he set himself up as the enemy of the wise and sovereign king whose plans cannot be thwarted by finite creatures. And one of my favorite parts about how the Lord showed Satan, who was boss, is that we learn in the Gospels, that Satan, by influencing Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus, he was actually the one who expedited the crucifixion of Jesus. (laughs) Of course, right? What would wicked Satan love more than the opportunity to initiate the killing of the Son of God, right? He loved that. He ate that up. But in initiating Jesus' crucifixion, Satan, who lured humanity into sin, got a taste of his own medicine. (laughs) He got a taste of his own medicine when he himself was lured into a divine bait and switch where he hung himself on his own gallows, so to speak. By seeing to it that Jesus died, he saw to the means of his own crushing. Because Jesus had to die, you see, in order to deal the death blow to death. And so instead of foiling God's plan of redemption, Satan unwittingly helped fulfill God's plan. (laughs) How's that for poetic justice? quote the great Christian hip-hop artist, beautiful eulogy in Shylin, the great I am became a man, came as a lamb and would be executed to execute the plan. A substitute to stand in the place of the wicked on the cross, he was lifted, but we considered him stricken and afflicted. Just like the prophets predicted, he came at the proper moment to stop his opponent and lay down his life to offer atonement. Satan had a chokehold on him, but Christ pulled a rope-a-dope and then was R to the I to the S to the E to the N. That's what our hope is in. So... <laughs> yeah, that's, that's worth celebrating. I, so, so that's the devil, okay? That's the devil in light of the gospel. He is a defeated foe, if you will. He's a defeated foe. That said, sometimes the villain in the movies is the most dangerous when he feels like he has nothing left to lose, Right? And that's really the situation that Satan is in. God has put him on notice. His time is coming to an end, and he's going to be locked up and punished for eternity without hope of escape. 
And so because of his, his hatred for God and God's image bearers, that is us, he's doing all that he can to make our lives and our mission more complicated and more difficult. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis gave this helpful dichotomy to us for how we are now to think about the devil, demons, and the spiritual war that they are actively engaged in. This is what Lewis says. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors, and they hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. Isn't that helpful? His point is clear. We should not live our lives like the devil has no influence or effect on us. And we should also not live our lives like Satan has more power and influence than he really does. On one hand, to deny that we are living in the midst of a spiritual war is certainly going to end in us falling casualty in that war. On the other hand, to be overly obsessed with the darkness and to meddle around in it more than you ought is most certainly going to get you into some trouble as well. Okay, Because even though the war has technically been won, our enemy is not going to lie down and accept defeat. He's going to fight until the bitter end when Christ himself binds him and throws him with his demons into the lake of fire, as Revelation says, will be his ultimate fate. But scripture strikes this happy medium for us, and based on Ephesians 6, we should understand the reality of spiritual warfare will remain until the return of Christ, and thus we are to understand and defend against it. If there are bullets flying by your house and bombs going off in your neighborhood you probably shouldn't just casually stroll out with your cup of coffee and your bathrobe to grab the newspaper off the sidewalk, right? Who does? That's like in the movies. I don't, nobody does that anyway, but you get the point. That would be stupid and suicidal. Well, in the same way, spiritually, we should not be oblivious to the efforts of the devil to harm us however he can before his final demise, Okay. 1 Peter 5.8 warns us to be sober-minded, to be watchful. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Well, as with any battle, there are two key things that we need to wrap our minds around if we're going to stand our ground and come out alive. First of all, we need to understand our enemy and their attacks, and we need to know how to fight back effectively. Church, I know that this is a topic that can sound, you know, kind of intriguing because of the kind of the veiled nature of invisible spiritual realities, but let me just remind us as we move ahead in this, um, this talk that these are not things that should be taken lightly, okay? This is a serious Topic And as Paul says, it's, it's not as simple as flesh and blood combat. We are up against cosmic rulers of the present darkness, forces of evil that are much stronger than us and that would love nothing more than to deal us great harm and as a result bring shame to the name of Christ and his people. Okay. Uh, thankfully, God has been very instructive in his word on both of those things. And so, uh, as Paul exhorts us, if we stand strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, then we'll be okay. All right. Now, as I said, this week will deal mainly with understanding our enemy and his tactics, because in verse 11, we're told, yes, to put on the whole armor of God, which we'll get into all of the armor next week, but that uh, what we are standing against is the devil's schemes. The devil's schemes. You know, I'm not, a, I'm not a huge football fan like some of you guys who know every player and every stat and all that. Um, but I am starting to get 
uh, more excited about my home team, the Jacksonville Jaguars, Duval, right? Uh, because if you, if you know our history, we've had a tough time for the better part of a decade. Things are really starting to line up for us with coaching and the right players and the right positions and all that. Well, today we're playing a big rival, the Kansas City Chiefs, who won the Super Bowl last year and who knocked us out of our playoff run. So uh, needless to say, we really want to beat them, and they really don't want to lose to us, okay? And the interesting thing about football at a high level like that is that these teams, they study one another super closely before they match up, okay? They learn what players have what particular strengths and unique techniques for getting the ball down the field, whether that's a super strong defense who will force a bunch of turnovers or a QB tight end combo who will just rack up tons of points if you don't keep them in check or whatever. Uh, They keep track of things like um, what players might be injured and pose less of a threat so they can use that to their advantage and shift their focus to other things. And the reality is they study one another because strategy is a huge part of winning the game. Right Now, bringing it back to spiritual warfare, we too should study the schemes of our enemy, and we should know him in that sense, because make no mistake, he knows us. Okay? He knows us. He's been around a long time, and he knows what our weaknesses are, because his MO is to exploit them. Okay, In 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul instructs the Corinthian church to forgive one of their members who sinned grievously and had since repented. And so he says, you know, forgive this brother, you know, so that, verse 11, he says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So friends, my hope in the next few minutes is to elaborate a bit on some of these schemes designs, and strategies of the devil, because as believers who are preparing themselves for spiritual warfare, we need to know that while Satan is unable to harm the eternal standing of those who are in Christ, he does have two main deceptive devices by which he tries to render them ineffective, temptation and accusation. Temptation and accusation. So again, let me, um, let me encourage you up front. In John chapter 10, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief, speaking of the devil, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Skipping ahead, he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So in this discussion of fighting the wiles of Satan, we need not fear the overturning of our salvation, okay? Those who have come to Christ, the good shepherd, in faith are safe, eternally in his care and cannot be snatched out of his hand, right? That said, just like the enemy slithered into the Garden of Eden to whisper terrible things to Adam and Eve, he will to this day slither up even to God's elect within the church in order to deceive them if possible and render them ineffective for the gospel ministry they have been called to. Uh, I would argue from that point that just as we need to be able to recognize the voice of Jesus, the good shepherd, we need to be able to distinguish the voice of our enemy as well so that we can tell them apart okay, and defend against the one that we should not be listening to. Puritan pastor Thomas Brooks wrote a fantastic little book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. I think he might be the true originator of that cultural phrase, not today, Satan, right? 
Um, okay, anyway, maybe not. But in the book, uh, he, he lists and details tons of specific ways or devices uh, that Satan attempts to use against us, and then he elaborates then on remedies or ways to respond to said devices. It's a great little read if you are interested, but this morning I just want to give you quickly four from each category, temptation, uh, and then four from the category of accusation. Uh, if you get Thomas Brooks's book, uh, he gives like 70 of these, okay? We don't have time for that. These are just some of the ones I think are probably the most commonly dealt with. So um, starting with temptation, here's the, this might be the, very, this might be the main thing that Satan does uh, in terms of a device, okay? In terms of temptation, especially. Presenting sin as pleasurable while hiding its consequences. Presenting sin as pleasurable while hiding its consequences. Uh, here's the way that Brooks says it. Presenting the bait and hiding the hook. Okay, um, This is what Satan does when he offers us opportunities to sin, isn't it? He talks it up. He tells us how good it's going to be. <clears throat> Which I should just go ahead and take this opportunity to say... In this device, but really in all of them, Satan has no ability for believers to make us sin. He has no ability to make us sin. So that, that phrase, the devil made me do it, right? Um, we need to retire that one. I don't know if anybody really even uses that. but um, Because the devil's business, all right, is, is not to make people do sinful things, but rather his business is the art of talking people into doing sinful things themselves, right? Tim Keller says, the devil doesn't make good people bad. He aims to help an already flawed person grow worse, right? So in order to do that, he presents sin as pleasurable and he hides its consequences. This is what he did with Adam and Eve, isn't it? It's exactly what he did with Adam and Eve. This is an ancient technique, and all of his techniques are ancient. He doesn't have any new ones. It's just recycled old ones, right? Genesis 3, regarding the forbidden fruit, Satan says to Eve, you will not surely die? For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil, right? So here's what's so sinister about this. He's right to a degree. He's right to a degree. Adam and Eve did have their eyes opened in a sense. They did become like God in learning about good and evil. The part that Satan failed to mention was the immediate shame that they would feel the separation from God that would happen, the ejection from their home in the garden, the downfall of their entire family and race, the fracturing of the very fabric of how things work in the universe with death and decay. Oopsie. Devil must have forgotten to mention that part, right? No. He left it out on purpose, and he continues to do so to this day. Just do it. It'll be okay. And it'll feel great. It'll feel amazing. You may wind up in a world of hurt, but he leaves that part out, right? That's how Satan works. And for each person, he knows their particular sinful bents. For those who struggle with materialism or pride or gluttony or lust and so forth, he always presents the appropriate baits. And he never fills you in on the destructive results. Addiction, debt, marital struggles may all surge in the wake of these sins if indulged in. But he hides the hook. He hides the hook. Because if he told you about the repercussions of giving in to these temptations, then you'd never go for it, right? Here's the next one. Minimizing and excusing Little sins. Minimizing and excusing little sins. Again, this is a clever one, isn't it? Just have a little taste, a little look, 
a little flirting, a little indulgence. It won't kill you. Well, actually, it might. Um, Like in Acts 5, when Ananias and Sapphira just told a little lie about how much they were giving to the church. In Acts chapter 5, it says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And then shortly after, if you know the story, you know that God kills Ananias and his wife Sapphira. Why? We can only speculate, but it's a reminder to us that for all sin, the wage is death. And God would be just at any moment to speed that process to the end with any of us, even for a little sin. But the enemy knows that we often justify and rationalize doing what we know is sinful if we can just do it in moderation, right? Just a little sin. We like to tell ourselves that we didn't really do it all the way, right? We just dipped our toe in the pool, so to speak. But in God's perspective, sin is sin is sin. Smaller versions of big sins do not make them any more acceptable in the eyes of God. Not to mention the principle, what we do with little, we'll likely do with much. Guess what? Satan knows that principle too. Satan knows that principle too. And if he can get us to sin, little sins, soon enough with a little secrecy and some wicked nourishment, they'll grow. They'll grow. You ever heard these sinister whispers before? These satanic devices, presenting sin as pleasurable, excusing little sins. Here's the next one. Showcasing God's mercy and love while omitting his judgment and wrath. Showcasing God's mercy and love while omitting his judgment and wrath. Satan will say, whatever the sin may be, just go for it. God will forgive you. God will forgive you. God is love, right? You don't have anything to be afraid of. Everyone sins. It's really no big deal. You just say you're sorry, and it's like it never happened, right? Never mind all the warnings in Scripture about this unbiblical, licentious mindset and how anti-gospel it is. Satan won't remind you about all those Scriptures. Well, not at first he won't. Not at first he won't. You see, um, he'll make you remember afterwards so that he can condemn you and make you doubt your salvation. Because this is what he does. See, he tempts and he pretends that sin is safe on the front end, and then he accuses and makes you feel like you're beyond salvation on the back end, right? Before you sin, God's all mercy and love, he'll say. And then after you sin, God's all judgment and wrath. More on this in a minute. The fourth temptation is this. Disguising sin as virtue. Disguising sin as virtue. The devil will say things like, it's not drunkenness. It's just being social or relaxing after a long week. Or he'll say, it's not lust. You just appreciate the human physique, right? Or it's not gossip, You're just really concerned about the person, right? Or you're not harsh and angry. You're just passionate and you care a lot. Or it's not pride. 
You just want to be and do the very best that you can. Or it's not greed. You just like nice things, right? This, guys, I feel icky. You know, it's like icky talking about this stuff, right? Like, because th- these are the devices. These are the lies that Satan utters to us. And, and this one, disguising sin as virtue, this is one of the worst <clears throat> of all the temptations. Because rather than even entertain the idea that what you're doing might be sin, you just explain it away altogether. Satan will tell you things like, you're such a good Christian, you're such a good Christian. This couldn't possibly be a problem in your life. Anyone who would say otherwise is just judgmental, right? Because just as 2 Corinthians says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so too he will disguise sin as something that's actually really good. Let me just say here, if you're thinking, (laughs) how could Satan, how could Satan ever convince Christians that something sinful is actually good? How could he do that? Good question. Two ways. Biblical illiteracy and isolation. Okay? Biblical illiteracy and isolation. And please don't mistake these as Satan's devices. These are just our own folly being used against us. Okay? First of all, Satan loves Christians who do not read and do not know their Bible because it is so much easier to deceive biblically illiterate Christians. Let me tell you something. Satan may be a loser. He is, okay? But he's no dummy. He's no dummy. He knows the Bible very well, okay? The the devil is a good theologian, okay? All the better for twisting scriptures and doctrines, right? When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, what did he use? Twisted scripture. And what was Jesus' defense? Right application of scripture. More on that next week. Uh, The enemy also uses isolation against us, okay? Have you ever watched a, a documentary on African cats? Which zebra does the lion always go for? The straggler, right? The one who's falling behind the group. There's a reason, friends, that Satan is compared to a lion. It's because his techniques against believers are very much predatory. They're predatory. And so any Christian who is not reading their Bible, and who is avoiding biblical community, is basically waving a big red flag to Satan saying, come and get me. Come and get me. Friends, we don't remind you every week to read your Bible and to be in community because it like puffs up our ego. It's because the Bible commands it, but it's also because it's unsafe for you to do otherwise. It really is unsafe for you to do otherwise. But anyway, that's, that's for free. Satan's temptations are crafty enough without adding our own handicaps to aid him in his success rate. But uh, moving on to the other side of the coin, Satan is not just the tempter, he's also the accuser. Here are four devices under the accusation column. Uh, the first one is overemphasizing sin and underemphasizing our Savior. You see, Satan loves to condemn. He loves to condemn. He loves to remind us of our failures and our shortcomings. And uh, hopefully you know, 
from my previous points and all of the other preaching that has been done in this church that uh, we do not excuse or minimize sin, okay? But friends, we have a mighty Savior. (laughs) We have a mighty Savior who has nailed all of our sins to the cross where his own blood was poured out to pardon our guilt. This is the central piece of the gospel that we claim to believe. And so we should be thinking and meditating on these truths every day, preaching them to ourselves, being reminded that his mercies are new for us every morning. Because Satan loves to whisper to us that we're just too far gone, that our sin is too great, and hopes that we'll sink down into despair and despondency and forget to look back to Christ for our encouragement. In one of the saddest Bible verses I know, we learn that after selling Christ out to the Jewish leaders for 30 pieces of silver, Judas, in his guilt, says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And in Matthew 27, 5, it says, And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. What a sorrowful thing that a man who had spent so much time with Jesus, undoubtedly having heard about the grace that he offered, instead of turning to the Lord for forgiveness, he took his own life instead. This is an extreme example, but this is what Satan does. He tempts us with sin, and then when we give in, he lays it on thick, how wicked we are, right? I love the great reformer Martin Luther's uh, words to this kind of accusation from the devil. He says, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, where where he is, there I shall be also. Right? Yeah. You see, the, the devil can bring up our sin all day long, and sometimes he does, but he has no argument against the gospel. He has no argument against the gospel. The only sin, friends, that we can be condemned for, the only sins we can be condemned for, are sins that have not been covered by the blood. And if your faith is in Christ, no such sins exist because Jesus paid it all. All right, next, on top of overemphasizing our sin, And underemphasizing our Savior, the devil will also tell us that ongoing sin struggles are incompatible with saving faith. Okay? Uh, And this is just (laughs) this is just an outright lie. It's just an outright lie. But Satan is not above lying, right? He'll do whatever he can to try to press us into the realm of hopelessness. In John 8:44, Jesus. Speaking of Satan says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Again, I can't reiterate enough why it's so important to have a firm grasp on the truth. Standing firm in the Lord, as our text instructs us, in large part is standing firm in his word. So that when Satan tries to throw us off balance with his lies, we're ready to draw on it in defense. But if, for instance, we don't know things, simple things, like how we were saved, what our hope of salvation is actually in, and what the process of our sanctification looks like, then we are vulnerable. We're vulnerable to this device with which Satan can cause us to doubt the genuineness of our faith. Because if we are wallowing in self-pity, wringing our hands in anxiety over whether we're even really saved, then we're going to be ineffective at helping anyone else. 
And that's what, Satan, that's what the devil wants. That's what Satan wants. So he will remind us of our sin, but not our Savior. He will lie and tell us that sin struggles are incompatible with faith. And third, he will distort God's character as weary of extending forgiveness and grace. We touched on this earlier, but just as strongly as the devil will assure us that God is nothing but love and grace in order to tempt us to sin, once we have sinned, he will try to convince us that we ought not go back to God right now because he'll be worn down. He'll be disappointed by how bad we are, right? Especially if there's some sin in your life that's a besetting one, Satan will try to convince us that at some point, God's going to stop forgiving us, which of course is not true. Where sin abounds, God's grace abounds all the more. The nature of our indwelling, constantly cropping up sin is what, what led God to send his son Jesus to the cross. So as as unfathomable as it is to have a God so willing to forgive over and over and over again for the same kinds of sins, this is who he is. This is who he is. Yes, God hates sin, but this does not lead him to grow weary of the repentance of sinners. He loves the repentance of sinners are coming to him broken and desperate for his not only forgiving but empowering grace to change. He tells us to do this. He tells us to do this, to approach his throne of grace in time of need. But Satan wants us to be afraid when we sin so that we will run away from God in shame instead of running to God for his help, okay? In Matthew 16, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, after hearing the foretelling of Jesus' death, begins to rebuke Jesus, old Peter. And then he's telling Jesus, right, that that'll never happen, Jesus, you'll never die, right? And Jesus turns to Peter and famously says what? Get behind me, Satan, Get behind me, Satan. He says, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, Jesus is not saying that Peter is Satan. <laughs> He's saying that Satan is using Peter's words to tempt him to not go through on the mission that he knows he must. In short, through Peter... Satan was trying to distort the character of God. And if he's bold enough to try that with Jesus, he certainly will with us. And finally, the last one, he will attempt to breed doubt in the promises of God. He'll attempt to breed doubt in the promises of God. He'll say... You know, God says he loves you, but these circumstances you're in don't feel very loving, do they? Hmm. Or um, this trial is so hard. Is God really working this out for your good? Doesn't seem good. Hmm. God says he knows what you need before you need it. So why does it seem like you're having to go without for so long? Or uh, you've been praying a long time. You haven't got any clear answer yet. Is God really even listening to you? You ever heard these questions? Not only does the enemy accuse us, but he also accuses God to us of not really being truthful and faithful to keep his promises. Again, this tactic is as old as time. This is exactly what he did in the garden when he whittled away at Eve's trust in God. And if we're not on guard, he will do the same with us, especially when we are in painful or challenging circumstances. That's when he shows up to question the faithfulness of God.
So, while Satan is unable to harm the eternal standing of those who are in Christ, he does have some deceptive devices by which he tries to render us ineffective. And if we are going to fight, then we need to know what it is that we are fighting against. These are just a few of Satan's schemes. I hope they've been helpful and eye-opening to you. But most of all, I hope they have awakened or maybe reawakened your concern with the fact that brother or sister, you are living in the midst of a spiritual war. You have a real enemy. He's not a goofy little, you know, red man with horns and a pitchfork. He's the invisible prince of the power of the air who is constantly trying to influence you to sin against God or to distrust God so that you'll be ineffective in the mission that we're all supposed to be on with God. Okay? Next week, we'll get into what Paul calls the whole armor of God that we are to use in defense of the devil's devices. But as we close, I just want to remind you one more time of our hope for the fight. Our hope for the fight. The cross has guaranteed our victory and Satan's defeat. The cross has guaranteed our our victory and Satan's defeat. As the song goes, someone's on the prowl trying to take us down, but we ain't giving up now. A liar and a thief coming after you and me, but we ain't giving up now. The harder the wind blows, the deeper our roots will go, and the devil's going to hang. Oh, the devil's going to hang. The devil's going to hang from his own gallows. And it's because of the cross. It's because of the cross. It's because of the cross and Jesus' subsequent sending of his indwelling Holy Spirit that John is able to say, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. It's because of the cross that we are now able to destroy strongholds and lofty arguments against the knowledge of God. It's because of the cross that Jesus' church is now being built and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it was by the cross that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities of this dark present age and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So when Satan tempts us to sin, we should remember the cross and the blood that he shed to rescue us from that very sin that we might be free from it. And when Satan accuses us of sin, we should remember the cross where the full price of our sin was dealt with once and for all. So let's close this morning by taking the Lord's Supper, a time to remember the cross and the death of Christ, the pouring out of his blood to atone for our sin and to save us from the clutches of the devil and the curse of death. If you're you're here today and your faith truly is in Christ and you, you know that, you believe the gospel, then you are welcome to partake of these elements with us. As we remember that Christ stood before God as though he were us so that we can now stand before God as though we are righteous like Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you once again for this day. And God, this is a this is a weird and challenging topic for us, the schemes of the enemy. But God, we thank you that you as always, you have not left us without your instruction, without your word that helps us to stand strong in you and the power of your might and the power of the gospel. And so, Father, I pray for myself, God, especially for myself after preaching that I might myself not be disqualified, but I pray for all of the men and women who are here after hearing a sermon like this, God, that we would not be ignorant of the enemy's designs in our lives and that he is trying to whittle away at our trust in you. I pray, God, that now in this moment as we partake of these elements at the Lord's table, that we would be reminded of the most important things that remind us that this war has already been won. Jesus has already shed his blood for our sin. His body has been broken for our sin. All of our sin, past, present, and future, wiped away. Pray that we would remember that gospel, and that that gospel 
even as we move into next week and talk about the armor, that gospel would be our main weapon against our enemy. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray.